You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who loves pretending to work from home, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, on the 500th episode of Recode Decode, is Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack. He was the guest on the very first episode this show did five years ago. Slack, of course, is a messaging software mainly used by businesses, including Box Media. The company went public last year, and it's one of the companies that's really critical at this moment because a lot of people who used to work in the office are suddenly working remotely. Stuart, welcome back to Recode Decode. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, I know. It's a pretty big honor. I know. Well, you know, you were not, you were my first, as they say. <laughs> um, uh, you know, when we talked, we had really bad linkage. Now we're on this thing called Squadcast because we're both at home um, because we're because of the coronavirus. And one of the things we I went back and listened to that first episode it didn't sound so good because we had bad sound. But um, and that's things have improved gigantically since then. But one of the things we talked about was this idea of working from anywhere, and the and it mm. was sort of a fresh idea. And people had done email and texting and things like that, but you introduced a whole new genre. Let's start first off by talking about coronavirus and, you know, your company, Zoom, many others, Teams, some others are are doing really well or, or there's a lot of heavy usage on them, uh, much more so. Delivery services, all kinds of things that have been put in place in the last five years, really. Um, let's talk a little bit about what, what your company's doing. Obviously, you've had a work from home culture at Slack, although you have an office, I've been to. Yeah, we have... 15 offices in 10 countries around the world, 2,000 people. And I would say, I actually don't know the answer, but I would say probably about 100 people who regularly worked from home until two weeks ago when suddenly everyone worked from home. So that was it was still a very big uh, transition for us. So talk about that. What, what did you do? What did you initially start to do? Now, everybody works on Slack at Slack, obviously. Yeah, there's, um, you know, when you said work from anywhere, uh, there's a company in Japan called Kakuichi, and they're I might have some of the details wrong here because I didn't look this up, but it's like 120 years old. They, they're they a pipe and hose manufacturer. Um, and uh, they only got an email a couple of years ago, but they started using Slack last year. We did this customer video with them, and I have no idea what it was in Japanese, but the, the translation and the subtitles um, in the video with the, the CEO, he says, Slack allows you to transcend time and space. So it sounds very <laughs> profound the, the way he said it, but... Um, and even back at the time that uh, we, d we did the first one, people would come to our office in San Francisco and say that it felt eerily quiet because people were doing most of their communication on Slack, even when they were in the same room. And one of the reasons for that was um, 
not everyone's there at any given time, you know? So the people who are going to come back later in the afternoon, they were at a meeting or they were otherwise out or, or they're just joining that team or that conversation in the future to the extent that you have it in a channel, uh, it's accessible in a way that it wouldn't otherwise have been. Right. And so to talk about right now, we'll go over what you've been doing the past couple of years, but what is your response to the coronavirus and what has your company been doing? Oh, um, it's, largely to facilitate people. Yeah, it's it's like everything. I mean, the last two weeks, I'm sure you've had a very similar experience, have been felt like like months and months. Mm -hmm. So two weeks and one day ago, um, Thursday the 6th of March, we um, – you walked out of our board meeting kind of with a plan for fiscal 2021 um, and our earnings guidance all kind of teed up. But the next day, we made the decision to, uh, at that point, strongly encourage everyone to begin working at home um, from Monday, spawn up all these channels. We have like, you know, HR and policy. We have the facilities team and security and the cascade of internal communications to the managers first. So Saturday that went out to the company. Monday was the first day working at home. And uh, Tuesday I flew out to New York. We were still traveling then with, with a couple of members of the executive team to go do the, the earnings call and, and do all the um, presentations. The to the, yeah, yeah. The sell side analysts and the investors. And, you know, even just in that, whatever, the 72 hours from when we made the call till, till Tuesday, the world had felt like it was completely different. We made some revisions to the guidance because we just couldn't tell what was going to happen. Just the, the degree of uncertainty was bigger. And then Wednesday night, I'm sure you remember this pretty vividly, there was this like hour, maybe two hour period where it was the NBA got canceled, Tom yeah, Hanks, this Tom tested Hanks, on, yeah. Yeah, and um, Trump yeah. travel ban. And mm -hmm. obviously just a huge psychological shift. And we made one last call about you know where we wanted to end up on the, the guidance. The next day, Thursday, we're doing the earnings call and talking to the analysts. Meanwhile, back in San Francisco, where headquarters is, there's 1,200 employees, and the schools just closed. So suddenly, you know, people who were already kind of in heavy negotiations with their spouse about who gets which part of the kitchen table for their next video conference now have a kid or two kids or three kids running around. Um, and they can't ask the in-laws to come over and help anymore. Um, you know, maybe mom's 70 years old and... and um, got to stay home. They don't have a nanny, you know, none of the normal services they can rely on. I would say that that week, you know, starting from whatever that would have been, uh, the 12th or something yeah. like that, mm -hmm. was the most productive week in the company's history because it's just super high adrenaline. Um, we still have this massive surge in interest, but I think we also just felt like, you know, this was our moment. Mm -hmm. And we immediately started a bunch of things. So one was... Um, starting to give comp plans to groups that were fighting coronavirus or mitigating the effects and things like that. So we always had a, a free program for nonprofits. And one thing that was really interesting about that that week, uh, and it continued into this week, is just a bunch of process got dropped. We just said, you know what? No one needs to log sick days in, in Workday this week. We don't need to do the normal approval process. We don't, if you're a nonprofit, we don't need you to send us your 501c3 papers and, and establish that. And everything just started, you know, taking, accelerating and kind of uh, moving to a higher degree of autonomy. And it's funny, you know, as a CEO, it's like all the stuff that I would, I've always wanted, just magically started happening. And it's, you know, un, in circumstances that are 
supercharged. You know, we're, we're, we had the first report of one of our employees whose, whose partner tested positive. We had a couple of people who were running fevers and, and hadn't um, been tested, tested. yet. Yeah, like the, just the general level of concern started ramping up. People are getting more anxious. And yet at the same time, we know, um, you know, one of our, our big customer wins, sounds weird to say that, at this right point, now. but was uh, was Veterans Affairs, and they run the biggest integrated healthcare system in the United States, and it's disproportionately going to be people who are who are elderly. So we're just imagining the the strain that they're coming under, and we had just started this rollout plan for them: twenty thousand um, people coming onto Slack, and that's a lot of people kind of all at once. So there's that happening. You know, there's uh, Joe DeRisi at, at the Biohub, and more or less every elite academic research institution running on Slack. There's virologists and epidemiologists and pathologists who are who are relying on it. There's obviously all all the customers as well, and what we call our customer experience team, which includes support, but documentation and others, spun up this program to do uh, one-on-one consultations with people who are trying to figure out how to make the transition. So I think Slack is a great tool for for working from home, but I think it's probably the bigger contribution is giving the organization the kind of agility and responsiveness necessary to make the transition to working from home. Because for us, it actually wasn't that big of a deal. But if you're a 40,000 person kind of more traditional company that relies on in-person meetings and, uh, and email to get things done, it's super painful. Um, to try and, to know what to do, first to deal with the technology and then yeah, to and, do and how people relate to their managers and mm-hmm. you know, how people communicate and, and all of that stuff. Um, so yeah, the question there was like, what was it like? It's, it was like everything because we're concerned for our families, for the community, for what's going to happen, you know, just to, to the world. I'm still a fiduciary and I'm running a public company and I have a responsibility there. Um, we have all these customers, but also everyone, we'll see, hopefully this lasts a while, not just at Slack, but just, you know, everyone generally is like, wants to help, wants to contribute, wants to, wants to figure out what they can do, how they can be of service. Do you feel an extra responsibility as a company that does link people remotely? Because one of the key parts is work from home. And, you know, today... Uh, I think New York City is essentially that you have to stay at home. Uh, All of California, yesterday Governor Newsom announced that. I think that's going to happen in a lot of the major states. I suspect it's going to happen here in D.C. So you've got responsibilities to help the companies you have, and including what you're talking about, a whole bunch of nonprofits, which they're critical that they have communications. You know, they communicate on Twitter, they communicate on all those things, but Slack is a really, is is in a lot of ways some a company that other people are saying this is going to win during this, and I don't suspect you want to win. And you, you know, you, are you getting the influx of customers of, that are signing up? And what yeah, do you do about absolutely. that? Absolutely, yeah. And you're right. I mean, the the um, obviously, but I said before, all of the above. I mean, it, it is everything. Mm-hmm. I I definitely don't want to appear ghoulish, but I also don't want mm-hmm. to be ghoulish. Like you know, hey, great. Global pandemic, super for business. Um, at the same time, I'm really conscious of our employees. There's an increased nervousness, I think, among everyone. It's like when you read about a 14% contraction to GDP in Q2 and you think about 20% of Americans might have already lost their jobs or had reduced hours, people worry about whether they're going to get laid off, whether the business is going to survive and and all of that. Um, so I, I think we feel very fortunate that this is not going to affect us in the way that it affects, you know, Delta or Marriott or mm-hmm. the the, the um, all the retail stores down the street from me. Hot hotels. Yeah, that's a, it's a it's a very rough environment. But yes, we've seen an insane surge. Like the normally, if you look back at uh, the previous quarter and the quarter before that, we add about five thousand net new paid teams. So these are companies. 
Um, some of them might be big, some of them might be small, but there's about 5,000 of them per quarter. We're halfway through this quarter, and we've already added 7,000. Wow. So that was one of the the numbers that we already put out there. We ended up having to file an, an 8K for it. But um, a lot of the, the graphs just have like straight lines that go that go right up for mm-hmm. messages sent, the time people are spending, expansion among existing customers, new people signing up. Um, and it's, I don't know, the, the, I didn't quite a chance to finish it before we started this call, but I was in the middle of composing a message to the whole company just because we've said this a, a few times internally, just to remind people, don't let work be a source of stress right now because people, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, I'm homeschooling suddenly. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I can't get more than two hours of work done a day. And I think the last thing we want is people um, worrying about that because that's not going to be sustainable because we don't think this is going to, it's not going to be two more weeks, right? This mm-hmm. is, you know, the most optimistic. Um, eight weeks. Right? Yeah, exactly. And this could be six months or more. We, we, I'm sure you saw the University College London report where it's like, you know, maybe we'll get to a position where it's 10 weeks indoors, two weeks outdoors in, in a mm-hmm. rotating queue of cities. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want to make sure people stay safe. And at the same time, we want to make sure that we're able to serve all these customers. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Getting them, first of all, what are people doing? What are they, what are they starting to do more messaging or what? What you, is there any trends you're seeing? Yeah. Um, so the number of minutes of active usage on average has gone up by about 35% or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, more channels getting created, more messages sent, more teams created. Just be, look, an, an increase in the intensity of usage. And I think that um, this was something that was going to happen no matter what. I, I don't mean necessarily to us. There's obviously, there's Microsoft, there's others, and, and in the future, I'm sure there'll be other startups. But the transition, you know, as much as, uh, I don't know if I've ever heard you complain about Slack, Kara, but I've definitely heard people complain about Slack in, in the broad sense, like too many notifications. What and, was it? No, I don't, I turn off all the notifications. So yeah, that's that's me. the way I do it too. Yeah. But, um, I like, like how, it. it's fine. Yeah, how could you go back to email as the, yeah. as the sole means of communication inside the company? Yeah. Yeah. And, I think that that's a shift that's inevitable over the next decade. And I think it just accelerated by a couple of years because there was yeah. also people who thought Slack was great and, and really enjoyed it, but essentially just used it in the way that they might have used, you know, AIM or Yahoo Messenger or something like that 20 years ago. It was essentially for, for DM, who suddenly are beginning, you know, depending on what they do, bringing in integrations with Salesforce or marketing automation tools or their mm-hmm. HR system um, and kind of... So it's more uh, like a dashboard rather than a messaging service. Yeah, and, and people get, you know, like the, the fundamental thing is is channels. And when I think about our transition, like I said, there's a lot going on. All of a sudden, we're not in the office, we're not all together. And we can have, um, you know, we, we use Zoom like many others. It's a great replacement for in-person meetings and it's kind of obvious why you would need it. But... There's many work streams happening, and I wanted to check in on, um, you know, there's an executive, uh, like a, a VP of engineering we're trying to hire. I wanted to check in on, on the offer, so I go to the hiring channel for that. Um, we have, for all of our large customers, accounts channels. I can go see what's going on there. Um, but basically, get into a position where people know where to ask the question or to give the update or, or catch up um, is, is essential. How do you, how, how, if you have this, you know, surge in usage and surge in everything, um, how do you then hire people? Because you're going you're, you're to have to be a, a net hire in, here in this. 
as yeah. we move forward. We uh, had a, a staff meeting a couple of hours ago, and this was the big topic. You know, so on the one hand, it's you know still trying to project out for the year. We still have to have a plan. I think it's unlikely that we'll be able to hit our original hiring plan just because of all the disruption. I mean, just you know, one of the things when we decided we're going to work from home, we're canceling all these events, we're closing our executive briefing centers, so customers can't come in, no salespeople are traveling. But also, we had hundreds of in-person meetings with candidates already on the books, you know, like we're already set up and suddenly all those have to be rescheduled. The candidates have to decide, do I, first of all, do I want to change jobs in the middle of this craziness? Um, do I want to accept an offer from a company when I haven't actually met the people physically in person? Do we want to extend an offer to these people? Um, so there's a whole bunch of factors I think that, that will affect that, but we're definitely, we're, we're still hiring. We, the question is like, are we going to be able to? And certainly, like any executive recruiting, I think it's impossible at this point just because every executive I know is 24-7, like, just focused on yeah, their business. exactly. Right, from their business. All right, we're talking with Stuart Butterfield. He is the CEO of Slack. Uh, Stuart was the first person I ever had on uh, Recode Decode, and it will not be the last time he comes on, but we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk about what it's like when he, when he talked to me initially. I think the company wasn't public, um, and sort of the journey of Slack since then and where it's going when we get back after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. We're back with Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack. We're talking about sort of the rise in usage of Slack uh, and other at-home, uh, work-at-home uh, tools, software tools that have been growing up. But let's talk about Slack in general. You guys just did a redesign and uh, announced a redesign. And when we first talked many years ago, it was pre-public. Talk a little bit about how that's gone for you. I mean, it's been up and down. The stocks have been up and down. Um, it's been a hard journey for a lot of startups to go public. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, five years ago, we had barely gotten started. So, I mean, let's see, we first went to, we were first publicly available six years and one month ago. So, everything has happened over that period. I think, you know, probably when I talked to you, when we did recorded the last one, um, maybe we had 50 employees yeah. or 100 yeah. or something like it was that. small, but a phenomena. You were a phenomena. Yeah, it was growing very quickly. Now we're, you know, over, over 2,000. And most things that have happened, happened since then. You know, we probably had um, a thousand customers and now there's 110,000. So even though that's that's relatively recent, uh, you know, in, in the grand scheme of history, it's a long time for technology. It's a long time for tech debt to accumulate and for product changes to kind of layer in one after another. And I think we got to a point, um, I would say, a, a few months ago where we, I sat down with a with a bunch of the product team, and we very painfully, over the course of a whole hour, walked through what it was like to get started with Slack for someone brand new today. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it was 
embarrassing and much friction. So much friction. But the one of the biggest things was you get to the end of the process. So let's say you you sign up for Slack, you haven't invited anyone yet. Now you're in the Slack UI. And over the years, we you know we add features. Everyone who worked on whatever, you know, feature X wants the button for their feature prominent and, and visible. So you end up in this UI where like the whole periphery of the window is like 53 inscrutable different icons. Yes. yes. And basically none of them work when you first get started. Like there, there are no threads to catch up on. There are no pinned items in the channel. There's no messages to search. There's no one in the team directory. But, you know, the whole thing is like this minefield of you, you, if you bring up, you know, get the courage to press a button that you don't understand what it does, you essentially get an error message. So mm-hmm. it was a miracle to some extent that people were getting started at all. And um, the redesign was a, a I mean, I think it was our fourth or fifth aborted attempt to to do it. Um, and one of those projects, and this is, I mean, I love making software and this is kind of what I live for, but one of those, those projects where you go down one path and then you change your mind and come back and you retread the same ground over and over mm-hmm. again and it's very frustrating and there's lots of arguments and then eventually you kind of push through to the other side and we ended up with, with something that was really good. So I think it, it'll be great for existing users. I think you'll hopefully enjoy it other people um around vox and and other you know customers broadly but i think it'll be a, uh, especially a big improvement for people who are branded to to slack so in what way what was the the conceptual is they sort of onboarding or making it pointful to you uh, onboarding well so um a lot of things i use this this, this example of the uh, of the uber app um when thinking about it where they change it around all the time, and sometimes Uber Eats is more prominent and, and stuff like that. But essentially, the UI is, where would you like to go? There's a button you can push to type in an address, and then other. Like, there's a, a menu that has everything else behind it. Mm-hmm. And people hate to be made to feel stupid. You mm-hmm. know? And, and software very often gives you these inscrutable yes. choices, and you have no idea what you're doing, and now you're hesitant. And um, But that's a pretty clear choice. Like, tell me where you want to go, or... You know anything else, and anything else includes change your payment method or get help or lost items. And so the challenge was like, that's obviously not going to work for Slack. That's it's a little bit more complicated than that. But what if we just had the message input, the the messages you're looking at, the channel list, and then other, and start from that and build it up. So the the end result is uh, a lot of the complexity kind of recedes back behind. Um, Menus. There's a kind of a rethink of which things belong together and how you group them. The information hierarchy. So it's much cleaner and simpler. There's there's just literally fewer buttons to push, which makes it easier for you to make any given choice. For new users, that's obviously better. But there's a double benefit. So first of all, it's it's simpler. But the other benefit is we can progressively reveal parts of the UI. We can hold things back until you actually need them. And then if we introduce it to you just in time, then suddenly there's an opportunity for you to actually figure sure. out what that thing is for. So it's not show them every bit of the menu right away. Exactly. It's, as, it's, it's the user experience journey that you're trying to, to, to come on. Exactly, yeah. So And the mobile experience has changed yeah, uh, by the time... I for, use Slack mostly on mobile. It's really interesting. A lot of people use desktop more, but I... I almost I'm, I'm actually with you. Um, yeah. I, I'd say I'm probably like 70% mobile, 30% desktop or something like that. That that change is coming. It's a couple of weeks. 
behind. It'll roll out to people a couple of weeks after. But yes, that's a pretty profound difference too. Um, and definitely one of the things that's happened in the last five years between 2015 and, and 2020 is the shift, not just in people's discretionary time um, mm -hmm. to, to mobile devices, but just work time in general. Now, I, I still have to sit at a desk um, or sit in meeting rooms for a lot, a large part of the day. So it's not like I'm constantly, you know, running from one place to another. But mobiles are just an increasingly important part of people's computing experiences. And and I think because we started back in in 2014, really, we've had to rethink the the shift in emphasis and, and how we get there. What about the shift in emphasis towards what productivity is? Because one of the things you're trying to do is replace things people are already using. Mm -hmm. You know, as we went from you don't remember this, but mimeographs to copy machines to, oh. you know, how we got things together. Uh, I'm turning um, 47 tomorrow. We, all we right, that's true. You're old. You're yeah. old. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. You're the old entrepreneur. You're one of the few. We'll talk about that in a second. But what do you imagine has happened in this? Because there's been tons of companies created, you know, either they're like you or they are in areas that are, mm -hmm. you know, peripherally uh, involved. And some of them do plug into Slack because you're sort of the, I would say you're the the dashboard that other people tend to operate, like Workday and others. Mm -hmm. What has changed in the productivity space in terms of innovation from your perspective? It's been so productivity software. I'm talking. Yeah, I mean, so I'll, an enormous amount, and then also not very much, and it kind of depends. You know the book uh, High Output Management. Have you ever heard of that? No, no, it's, but I'll read it. It's uh, well, I don't know if you if you like, insist. It's it's kind of a it's, it's written by Andy Grove, so. Mm -hmm. um, CEO of Intel back in the day. Yes, I read the paranoid one, but yeah. go ahead. Um, and this one's more of like kind of a, a, a Bible of product managers and, and some management people in Silicon Valley. So I don't know if I'm, if that's not you, maybe it's not a good that's book okay. to read. I'm going to have to read it now. But, but the interesting thing is at the beginning, he wrote it originally, um, I guess in the mid-80s or so, and then there's this, uh, this preface that he wrote for a second edition that essentially says like, hey, everything I'm about to tell you in this book is totally true, except let me tell you about this crazy new thing called email. And mm -hmm. at that point, he makes, so Intel, probably most people know the brief story, but originally made computer memory, not not CPUs, mm -hmm. and they um, competed against all the Japanese memory manufacturers and got to the point where they're just getting their butt kicked. And they did. Like, yeah, they mm -hmm. were you know, on the verge of, of going out of business. But he makes this point, uh, which I thought was really fascinating, that the Japanese teams tended to sit at one long table with the manager in the middle. So everyone overheard every conversation. Everyone was kind of in the loop and knew what was going mm -hmm. on. Meanwhile, at Intel HQ, everyone had their own office with the door closed. And if they wanted to communicate with one another, it was they called a meeting or they sent a memo and the memo was Xeroxed or you know, maybe earlier on mimeographed mm -hmm. and, and um, you know, like taking a paper and, and putting it into a little tube and stuffing it in the cubby hole or inter-office mm -hmm. mail envelopes and stuff. Yeah. So when email came out, for the Americans, it was like, holy smokes, this is a billion times better than what we were using. Right. And it got instant adoption. For the Japanese um, teams at that time, they saw email and they're like, eh, you know, we don't, that doesn't strike us as, as valuable. And this is, you know, now a very old memory for me of, of the, what I said in the book, so I might be ca characterizing this inaccurately. But that was a huge step forward for Intel. Like suddenly, they, mm -hmm. they ramped up the way that they communicate. And communication is the most fundamental thing that people do in, inside of organizations. You look at um, how people spend their time. If you're a knowledge worker, and this may or may not be, I think this is probably more true for you at the time of being an independent business operator. Yeah. Um, 
and maybe less true now, I don't know, but people spend more than 50% of their time just on basic acts of internal communication and coordination. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I do a lot. I, I minimize them. I, I wrote a column at the time recently, it hasn't published yet, that says, you know, I, I'd rather not meet, I'm, I've said as the original social distancer, mm-hmm. especially at work, because I don't yeah. like going into the office. I'm like, I'd rather not have a meeting. I'd rather send you an email. In fact, I'd rather send you a text. In fact, I want the, I, you know, I'd rather have a call. And then I'd say, no, I'd rather send you an email. Actually, I'd like to text. Actually, I'd have the one word text. Like, I'd like to get down to the one word. Yes, no. Or just upload you know. a photo. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. But a I, GIF. So, whether it's best. text, email, in person, phone call, Slack, whatever, there's this extraordinary effort that people put into communication sure. across companies. And, and you, you got to look like all across all the different roles. People do the quarterly business reviews and the like the roadmap planning sessions and the daily stand-up meetings and the status reports. People spend an incredible amount of time making slide presentations and then they're going to show the slides in a meeting. And the whole point of the meeting is to get people up to date on what's going on. So I don't have evidence for this. My contention is that that's more than 50% for, for knowledge workers if you average it out. And it's not that that stuff is unimportant. I think it's critically important because keeping people together and, and aligned and coordinated is, you know, the hardest challenge for a large organization. If you can get any leverage on that, I think it's disproportionately impactful um, relative to anything else you could do. Like there's no, no one's going to type stuff faster in a way that's going to have a real impact on their actual productivity. Um, I think the tools do continue to get better um, and the you know, software gets better, our computers get faster, the screens are nicer, the, the phones are you know, obviously um, much easier to use and there's improvements all over the place. But fundamentally, the bottleneck for humans working together is going to be how well they communicate, how well aligned they are. And so I think the biggest step forward in productivity typically comes from uh, a change in... Uh, in how you communicate. Now, obviously, Slack is you know, a, a big part of that or it can be a big part of that for organizations, but there's other stuff too. Like when we started the work from home transition, it was like, all right, th- this is going to be disruptive. Let's use it as an opportunity to kind of rethink our somewhat out of control meeting culture and just, mm-hmm. are there meetings that were, you know, the whole point of them was to get a decision? Let's just escalate and get the decision without having to have the meeting. Sure. Let's see if we can make them half the time. And actually, the first uh, all-hands meeting we had after that, normally they're an hour long. They're a little bit of a heavier lift. People have slides. There's kind of you know formal presentations. People do rehearsals and stuff. Mm-hmm. This one was 23 minutes long. It was you know a bunch of execs speaking for 30 to 90 seconds about what's most important for them and their teams right now, what's going on. There's a lot of expression of, of gratitude and appreciation for people stepping up, um, and it was obviously much more informal. So uh, Julie Legal, our our head of marketing, is didn't skip a beat. She's doing her update, and she has one daughter suddenly crawl into her lap, and another daughter pop up behind her on the <laughs> on the camera. And the audience went wild. Like people were mm-hmm. were screenshotting that inside the company and saying, you know, thank you, Julie, for normalizing this because people are always worried about their kids. Right, showing the kids. Up. Yeah. Well, nobody wants what happened to that guy. Although everybody the, wants what happened to that guy. Like, Remember that, that kid is amazing. I mean, yeah. I think if you had that that daughter, I, you'd yeah. probably want to show her off. But yeah. um, so that, that, then the meeting was 22 minutes long. It's like, great. You know what? Maybe, why don't we- Done just, and done. Yeah, let's do all of our all hands like that. They're rather than yeah. people sit still for an hour and everyone change their, their uh, locations in order to do it. So enough of those kinds of changes can be absolutely transformative. And you think about the mm-hmm. most- Kind of stuck organizations, the 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 places that are the, you know where it's the hardest to get things done, um, and I uh, I remember your 
let's say, I don't know, participation in Yahoo's evolution back in <laughs> 2000, 2004, 2005, 2006, yeah. 2007. Peanut butter, man. Yeah, all that era. Man, that was like, it was very difficult to get anything done. And I don't, no. Yahoo wasn't the worst of it either. I mean, there's definitely no. companies that, are, there's companies going out of business all the time because it becomes more or less impossible for them to coordinate people effectively and deploy yeah. all that, you know, I don't like this term very much, but deploy all that human capital towards the the ends that are going to be most productive for them. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I was just talking to someone today. I'm thinking of doing something and I, I, I've changed my mind about doing something. And I, they said, what changed your mind? I said, I think you can make things now. I think before you spent a lot of time talking about making things. Like, yeah. I think you actually can actually get things done. And I, I, and I did believe that two years ago, which is interesting. Um, so I want to finish up this section. So what has it been in terms of what you've done where you're looking towards? Are you looking towards things like AR and VR? Or what's, the, what's the thing, if you could say what Slack is sort of the most fast-forward thing you're working on, what would that be? So not, not much in AR and VR for us, and maybe there'll be um, applications. <laughs> or video. You have some yeah, video. We've got, got some video. But I think yeah. the thing— but not that, heavy. It's not video. It's text-heavy. Yeah, it's I mean, that's, it's just not what we do, the mm-hmm. the um, kind of voice and video calling. There's people who do like like I said, we're, we're a customer of Zoom, so there's people who just do it better than us. But there's a class of things that I don't think anyone does better than us. But um, the— if, I, if, you, if what we're asking about is a kind of like future mm-hmm. um, interesting technology things, I think a lot of the opportunities are around um, what can you learn about your own organization and, and how well you communicate or don't based on an analysis of what people are actually doing. And we get this incredible signal. So when I finish this call, I might pick up my phone and I'll have little you know, there's little red notification bubbles because a bunch of people send me direct messages and there'll be five of them. And I'll just tautologically, I choose one of them first. And then later on, there'll be three, and I choose one. And then it'll be 11, and I choose one. Over time, it's pretty easy for Slack to tell who's the most important person to you. Like, who, mm-hmm. if you have an unread message from person X, who's, who's the person X that you're always going to look at first? Mm-hmm. We get a good idea of the overlap in channel membership, who has authority in different areas. And we've already released some features along these lines, like people search, which helps you find people who are experts in given topics. So sometimes you're mm-hmm. looking for a document. I know this document exists. I just want to find it again. Other times you're looking to learn about a topic. And uh, inside of the companies, the bigger they get, the more time people spend trying to find the expert or who's allowed to make decisions about or who do I go to ask about, um, you know, whatever. And that, uh, I think that is increasingly valuable um, the bigger we get. The further stages of that for me are part about, um, you know, visualizations you can make about the internal networks, but really the highest form is these organizational insights that can, I'll, I'll give you one example. That your data will show, or that your data will yeah, show. Yeah, I'll give you one example. So imagine, you know, you put in a search term and you get search results. Um, sometimes that's just what you want. You want the list of, of things mm-hmm. that match it. Imagine if you put in a search term and what you get back is a heat map of sentiment differentials among different populations of the company. So I put in the name for our new product and the marketers are love it, super happy, and the salespeople are very pessimistic, very, very negative on this thing. You know, that I don't know exactly what that means, but it's definitely something that I would want to dig into. And Slack's in a position to be a, the custodian on behalf of our customers for a huge amount of data. And what can we do with that to help them improve the way that they communicate, improve the, the way that they operate, to kind of uncover and correct dysfunctions? So or more, more of this, you're taking temperature and saying more this, less this, more this, this works, this doesn't. Exactly, kind of yeah. 
So it's uh, it's kind of polling by walk, like sort of paths are made by walking. That's an old uh, poem. The idea that people walk a certain way, and now we're going to tell you how they're walking. Yeah. In a software sense. All right. We're here with Stuart Butterfield. He's the CEO of Slack. We're talking about his product and the company and the experience they're having right now, uh, providing a product that's very helpful to people working at home in, during the coronavirus crisis. When we get back, we're going to talk about tech in general and how he looks at the industry now um, and where he thinks it's go Silicon Valley is going and innovation is going in the future. We'll be back after this. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We're here with Stuart Butterfield, the CEO of Slack. We talked about a range of things, including where Slack is going and how they're responding to the coronavirus crisis. But I want to talk about broader Silicon Valley and innovation. Um, you've started a number of companies, Flickr, um, and a lot of them out of problems, like, you know, both Flickr and Slack, as many people know, were started out of mistakes that then you turned into advantages, essentially. Mm -hmm. One of the things that that talks about is the ability to innovate quickly and to shift quickly. Talk a little bit about how you look at the broad Silicon Valley market right now um, and, and where innovation is. A lot of people are worried about the large companies. You did not sell your company. I'm sure, I know you've had millions of offers to do so from much bigger companies. One of the things the FTC is looking in is purchases of companies like yours yeah. um, when they were at a small thing. Talk a little bit about this, um, how you view it, because it, it, many think it's one of the most serious issues happening is the lack of ability to innovate constantly. Yeah, it's um, it's it's very interesting. I think on the consumer side. So if you look at Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon as well, my impression. This is not you know insider information. My impression from the outside is that it's going to be tough for them to buy anything of any significance. You know, maybe like a a little eight person startup where they have some technology that they like or they want to buy the team. But it's impossible for me to imagine a significant acquisition of another consumer service by by Google or Facebook. Um, at this time, you know, part of it is maybe the political environment. And I don't mean, you know, Democrats and Republicans. I just mean the, uh, the impression that people have of the industry. But also, they're they are big. I mean, they are. I don't think that they're monopolistic in the sense uh, that Standard Oil was, but um, mm -hmm. they have incredible market power, and it is difficult for for new companies to come up. But on the other hand, you know, you look back, two thousand and four, like. When I'm trying to remember what year everything was, but I say when I joined Yahoo after Yahoo acquired Flickr, which I believe was the end of 2004, early 2005, mm -hmm. like over that 
the Christmas break, Yahoo was bigger than Google in terms of, of revenue. Like yes, maybe they were. Like double or triple or something mm-hmm. like that. By the time, and I, you had talked to Google, you had talked to. Google. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think you have inside information there. I do. I do. Um, but by the time I left, Google was you know four times bigger or something like that and growing so much more quickly. And I think uh, Yahoo was one of the survivors of the the first crash, eBay and, and Amazon and Yahoo and a couple of other companies. And it seemed like you know 2004, maybe even in 2005, kind of unstoppable behemoth. Terry Semmel's the best paid CEO in America. And a couple of years later, that just wasn't the case anymore. And there's definitely companies that have remained strong over a longer period. But... Um, that stuff, life comes at you pretty fast. Uh, and the companies that seem unstoppable, juggernauts, uh, one year can, a couple of years later, that you know the world can completely change. But it hasn't for them. I mean, they've only gotten stronger in a lot of ways. And I think they've sort of, and especially in a crisis like this, mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a real culling of the herd here. And the strong ones that have the deep pockets to stay in business are really going to do a lot better. They can wait it out, you know. And some will benefit, like Amazon with the delivery right now, um, no matter what challenges they face with coronavirus delivery and this and that, they will come out stronger. People will get more used to delivery. Yep. There's upside for them, unfortunately, in this, uh, as it is with your company and, and Zoom and others, because people get used to trying something. But in general, these big companies sort of have never been more powerful, and it seems like there's nothing that will not keep them powerful yeah. going forward. Is it so? Two thousand. So you're a smaller player, and they're all now in your space. They're all up in your grill right now. You have Microsoft. You got Google. Like everybody's now up in your grill of what you're doing. All the big companies. How do you deal with that as a smaller company? Um, Effectively, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, you're like Spotify, you know, but yeah. you still worry about being able oh, to compete. Oh, you still given have to worry resources. about competition. You know, the one of the things that I think uh, maybe a, a harder, not 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 difficult, but like it might take a little bit more time for people to wrap their heads around internally is we say we should always do whatever is the best interest of the customer. So blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Everyone says customer centric, but I mean like. We should never be in a position where we would be embarrassed if a customer saw how we were spending our time. We should always do what like a rational, perfectly well-informed customer would want us to be doing. And that's mm-hmm. never going to be spiting competitors, right? So there's, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter what Microsoft does. If what was important to customers was you know this improvement to performance and this new feature and this compliance um, you know regulatory uh, feature security or something like that, then that's what we should do. And it doesn't really matter what what Microsoft does. And that can be tougher for people to wrap their head around as opposed to the you know reacting. They did X, we better do Y. And um, I talked about that. This is now kind of. Uh, maybe too quaint of a phrase, but you, you would never want to cut off your customer's nose to spite your competitor's face. Like you just, right, you know, that right. would be a, a really foolish thing to do. Um, and the the tough thing is, you remember the picture of, of Microsoft in 1977 in Albuquerque? I'm sure you've seen it. You know, there's like 12 oh. of them and they're all hippies yeah. mm-hmm. and, and stuff. Yeah. And like five years later, IBM didn't know it yet, but the biggest and most valuable company in the world was about to get Kind of suckered right. by by Microsoft, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but fast forward to you know 2000, Google starts gaining popularity. Search looks like it's a real business. The Overture lawsuit patents are mm-hmm. settled, and AdSense is going. And you know at that time, Microsoft had 90 whatever percent market share for Windows, 90 whatever mm-hmm. percent market share for Internet Explorer. They had already bought Hotmail. They had MSN. They had you know hundreds of times more engineers. They had hundreds of times more capital, and they said. Hey, we should get into that. I mean, like they literally controlled everyone's access to the internet, 
mm-hmm. like a stranglehold, and yet Google just got away. And you might say that Google was the special case because they're you know really, really smart. They're special kinds of geniuses. Mm-hmm. But then fast forward another seven years, and Google Plus, first first time they've ever promoted yeah. anything on the homepage. If you are a YouTube user, you got to have a Google Plus account to comment, promote it in Gmail, just like all-out yeah. war on Facebook. And Facebook was like, didn't matter. Doesn't Nothing matter. happened. Right. You know, they, right. they had rough patches here and there, but it wasn't because of Google so much. So it, that can happen. You know, like if you're the smaller um, startup that has a real focus and real traction with customers, I think you have some advantages against the large incumbent that has multiple lines mm-hmm. of business because it's just, it's harder for them to uh, to focus. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take competition seriously. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, so there's a little bit of nuance there. And more recently, yeah, would you like, would you, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just say, like, you know, at, at one point when I kind of made those comparisons, I would go on, and this is like three or four years ago, I'd go on to say, and then look at Facebook going after Snapchat, but then mm-hmm. they kind of effectively did go after Snapchat, although Snapchat right. still exists. And by the way, they're still, yeah, oh, they're still Microsoft kicking. still exists and IBM still exists. Right. Um, it's just, right. you know, there's, there's new kind of layers that come up, but more recently, I guess it would be TikTok. Right. TikTok or, or in the case you know, there's lots. There's lots of different. There's Spotify, yep. which continues to hold on. But you know, it's harder to be. I, you and Spotify sort of remind me of each other in that regard. Is that you're winning through some sort of innovate, innovation or something else that you have more. You're close to the ground with customers. Mm-hmm. But would you like some help from the government on this? Do you feel that these companies are have too much power? Would you have you been talking to legislators about no, this? No, no. I mean, I mean, I'd I like to have every unfair advantage in the world. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> this one is tougher because. I think it'd be tough to have an antitrust case against Microsoft Teams at this point because there are many people using it, but they're all of the hundred million users of Skype for Business are being forced migrated to Teams. Um, so people are using it for voice and video calling, which just isn't what Slack does. Um, so I don't think it's going to show up that they have uh, a monopoly there. I think they do have some unfair advantages in the fact that they have you know, hundreds of millions of users of Office 365 and they give this away for mm-hmm. free and 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 all of that. But especially in the U.S., it, it's, there's no effective mechanism for remediating that kind of stuff anyway. Like mm-hmm. what would happen mm-hmm. is you go to the regulators and, and then if they think you have a case, they'll go and put it before Congress and then Congress will deliberate. And if they say, yes, there's a problem here, we need to rectify it, then they make some kind of judgment immediately goes into appeal and now you have several more years and like you know yeah, now you're talking about like, it's going to be 2026 or something like that by the time yeah. anything happened and and by that point who cares what kind of regulation should there be on tech and i've talked to this to justice department people said it's just moving so slowly and they're moving so quickly we don't know if we can get i mean these are top justice department people they're like these cases are not like the old days and even the microsoft case didn't got appealed several parts of it and it you know everyone thinks they lost but i'm like did they did they actually lose um, and so one of the things is what should happen? What do you think the key parts that should be regulated? Is it privacy? Is it uh, anti-hacking legislation? Is it uh, stuff around, um, you know, teens and depression or addictiveness, device use? What do yeah, you, where so do you I'm, think? You know, if, if I have to choose, if the only choice in the world is anti-regulation or pro-regulation, I would say I'm pro-regulation just because it's great mm-hmm. um, that there's not as much lead paint that, as there used to be in um yeah. You know, kind of environmental controls and, and a bunch of other stuff. For the areas that are moving the fastest, I think they're the toughest to regulate because you just don't know what the impact is going to be. And often by the time things are enacted, it, it's too late. So I have some some sympathy for the people, you know, who 
in, inside the DOJ and, and elsewhere, all the regulators, who are genuinely good, hardworking people who are concerned about the country and the citizens, and they're trying to do the, the best job that they can. So I think we have to be really thoughtful about it. Some of the the regulations uh, that we've seen in the last couple of years have been less effective than others. You know, I think GDPR, well-intentioned, but kind of ended up being a little preposterous. And, you know, like there's a lot of, of media organizations in the U.S. that were just like, we can't do this. So our, our website is just not accessible for Europeans anymore. Mm-hmm. We were able to do it, but it was a giant pain. It was a huge amount of, mm-hmm. of energy and effort that went into GDPR compliance for us. And I think it's completely irrelevant for Slack. Like it wasn't, it didn't really matter, but yeah, we, got, there wasn't. we got kind of caught up in, in the dragnet. Oh, well, you're not using data that much. Yeah. You know, that's not how you're advantaging yourself. No, but but for Google and Facebook, I think it actually kind of entrenched them further because smaller competitors are just not going to be able to implement and to, to hew to those those regulations. So I don't mean to pick on on that because, I you know, I understand the intention behind it, but it's a good example of a well-intentioned approach to regulation um, that has unintended consequences. And I think, you know, probably backfires. And some of it is, there's some subtle ones, right? Like the right to be forgotten is one that Mm -hmm. I've always found really interesting. I don't have a clear opinion to be totally candid either way, because there are unfair things that can get published online and you should be able to to get rid of them. On the other hand, should serial con men or swindlers be able to wipe all their misdeeds off the internet and then go on to to swindle other people? Um, And that's just Trump, so. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, you left that one. Wide, wide open. Um, Wide open. Yeah, so there's there's some there's some really tough ones. I mean, I'm not trying to be hand wavy about it. I I genuinely no. But do is there anything you think needs to be regulated? Because there are no regulations on the internet. Really, there aren't. There nothing's been regulated. I mean, if you could pick one that was. Oh, here comes the cat. Hello. Um, is there anything you think needs to be regulated or that should be if you had to pick one? Or, or using these fines, just find them when they violate data practices. Because every issue is different, whether it's Facebook overusing your data or uh, Apple not giving advantage to the apps, the correct apps, yeah. or uh, Google you know, having a monopoly on the search business. There hasn't been a search business created in 150 years since it started. Same thing with social media. Snap mm-hmm. was the last social media company. You know, they own, speaking of you, they own photo now. There's nobody but Google and Apple and photo, right? That's it, yeah. essentially. So um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I can't say that I agree that there's no regulation because there's a, there's a lot of of different regulations and, and they're continually coming into effect. And you just uh, earlier this year, the California privacy regulations came into effect. And because California is such an important market, they're effectively national or even international mm-hmm. regulations. And I think generally the the privacy protection ones, the data breach notification ones, those are actually important um, and, and probably have close to the intended effect. Um, I think there's also ones that I, I actually... I'm not expert enough to know whether we'd class these as just laws versus regulations. And some of it is voluntary compliance, but the screening of um, image and video uploads for child exploitation and the mm-hmm. cooperation that a lot of organizations have with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, I think, you know, that's that's an important area. Um, for antitrust, I just don't know. I mean, like when the political conversation was very different four months ago when there were still the Democratic primaries going mm-hmm. on and um, and people were like, oh, oh my gosh, what's Elizabeth Warren going to do if she gets, right, gets yeah. elected? Yeah, uh, there was a freak fit in Silicon Valley, wasn't there? Yeah, uh, but some of the, like I can imagine splitting apart YouTube and Google. It's 
impossible mm-hmm. for me to imagine how you split apart Google, just like web right. search, in a way that's... Oh, they can't have products. And you could do Amazon very easily. You're like, you can't make stuff at be the marketplace and sell it on the marketplace. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, definitely, there's definitely examples where you could break it up. I don't know if those would be net good or bad. There's, there's some, you know, I don't think mm-hmm. it wouldn't be some kind of tragedy for the world if um, Instagram and, and the main Facebook site were, were separated. It like, doesn't really, mm-hmm. that's not going to hurt anyone, I don't think. Actually, shareholders would do better. With two companies, yeah, in a weird way, you know. All right. So, in terms of of, of where it's going, you don't. Do you feel like there's going to be that when people did have that sort of uh, Silicon Valley freak out over Elizabeth Warren, and I think Mark called it the existential crisis threat. To, I was like, mm, now you're going to say a different thing, probably. Do you think that Silicon Valley is very nervous about it now, or, or there hasn't been any Democrat or Republicans coming together on this yet? I, I mean, the current situation has just completely overwhelmed every other bit of conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and that that's as it should be, I think right now, um, I'm not, I mean, trying not to be overtly political in this, but I, I voted for Warren in the primary. I don't have a problem with it. And I, I think that a little bit of, of that I put down to posturing, uh, in the, mm-hmm. in the primary, but also there's just practical ramifications that are, that are really difficult, but I don't, you know, at this point, no one cares. I, mean, I feel like even no the conversation cares, about right. who's going to be the Democratic nominee is almost yeah. b- fine. Whoever it is, great. Let's not let's not concern ourselves yeah. with that um, because you just don't. You have no idea how this is going to roll out. You know, like every yeah. day, I, I do have the responsibility of being a public company CEO and I have a fiduciary and I take all that very mm-hmm. seriously. And at the same time, I'm really worried about our employees, about the community. I ordered some food from one of my favorite. Um, Mediterranean restaurants last night and uh, and the guy thanked me because they don't normally do delivery but they're doing delivery now. The guy thanked me for the support and um, it's like every time I've ever driven past like a, a mom and pop store or a restaurant that's gone mm-hmm. out of business it's always upsetting because it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's like it's someone's life work and they're probably bankrupt like yep. it just it, it ruins them and when you think about the cascade of that never I mean also people dying of a respiratory infection, you know, that's that's mm-hmm. obviously a big deal. But the knock-on effect of this is going to be um, yep, incredibly found. consequential. And and that's definitely the, what's top of mind right now. So I want to finish up then, our last question, about how do we keep being innovative as a country? I mean, one of the things, many people felt there was an innovation deficit uh, to start with recently. How do we stay innovative? How do we keep investing in sort of the next thing? And if you were starting another company, what would it be? Because you've started you've started several. Yeah, so I mean, today it might be a different answer than it, than it would have been a, a couple of months ago. But um, I've always liked the expression, never waste a crisis, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yeah. not, to, not to belittle or, or not take the crisis seriously. But one of the things I found really interesting is... Um, Bernard Arnault saying to the LVMH companies that that make perfumes, all right, everyone, you're making alcohol-based sanitizer now. Um, the I, I was I was in a conversation with Twitter with a group in Germany that's doing this hackathon, but also another group in Ireland that's an open source ventilator project and, and people trying to get ventilators out. And there's this like sudden surge of of creativity and um, technological innovation that is, you know, aimed at the that the public good and people feel a real motivation. And it's it's a totally different thing to have like a hackathon when times are good, you know, people, mm-hmm. everyone's fat and happy and the, you Yeah, know, what dating apps should we make? Exactly. Right. And, and suddenly it's like, 
wow, this this matters. You know, um, having mm-hmm. up to date data matters. The fabrication of new testing technologies, the the rush that people have got into, um, you know, the, like startups that were in in biotech and um, and mm-hmm. pharma already, um, getting their their kits into market. So yeah, there's dealing with disinformation, misinformation. This is, you know, it's interesting. Definitely. Zuckerberg had a quote. He's like, well, this matters. I'm like, it all matters, actually. It, and now it, all, you know, it did this, all always matter. You know, it does. And of course, it's very clear here why it does, because people actually die, but they die in other ways. You know yeah. what I mean? They died before. You just didn't see it in such a stark relief. So it's it's whatever it is. is take it, take what you're doing seriously. Yeah, I think it's your now impact. people feel like they have a purpose and that matters. Mm-hmm. And so they're motivated and they're inspired. And that, you know, a lot of the technical skills that have accumulated over the last couple of decades, the interesting advances in technology are suddenly like, what can we do with this for the good of humanity? And that's that's really nice to, to see. To people have a mission, you know, how can they help each other? Right. So the last question I asked you on the last the last one we did was, uh, what would you do if you weren't running Slack? And you said, this one I'm going to stay at. I'm going to ask you that question again, a final question. If you weren't <laughs> running Slack, what would be the startup Stuart Butterfield would do? Oh, it's so hard to imagine because I, I, I do, like, I'd like to do this for the next 25 years if I get to, to stay on doing it. Um, I don't know if I would do another tech startup right now or not. I'm getting, I'm a little, little older. I'm not sure if I have the, the juice to start another one. Um, a restaurant, maybe, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, at the same time, I, I'm sure that there's real uh, innovations. I think there's a lot of stuff that's still to be done in the application of all this great technology we have to um, financial services, but particularly to services for the, for the unbanked. You know, you hear about... Mm-hmm. Um, fast food employees getting paid in ATM cards that have a 75 cent charge for any usage. And suddenly Mm -hmm. you're getting paid $5.30 an hour and now you're dinged every time you want to buy food. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's a big area. But as I've gotten older and I think, you know, obviously in a, in a better position financially. I'm less motivated to do startups and more motivated around some of the the philanthropic causes. And more recently, I think... um, uh, criminal justice reform, and, and obviously this is going to be a, a critical time for a, a country that's put five percent of its population in jail, or whatever the number is at this point. I guess, sorry, mm-hmm. that's a little that's a little high. I just realized uh, mm-hmm. sub one percent, but still millions and millions of people in in prison who are going to be susceptible to this disease, and and, and many 100%. of them have to pay for their own soap. So, right. yeah, the, the, right. I feel like there's a set of priorities and areas where I would be investing my time and energy that aren't starting a new business. All right, Stuart, I really appreciate you coming on and thank you so much for coming on my first one and now this one. Yeah, it's amazing um, accomplishment. And good luck with getting um, everything that you're doing there with the uh, with, with your company. As I think it's one of the, you know, one of the critical companies to working well going forward in the next couple of months when we get through this, and we certainly will, yeah. um, that people will be able to do so. Um, anyway, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. And hey, congratulations on 500 episodes. That's incredible. <laughs> 500 more, Stuart, 500 more. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer is Erica America. My producer is Eric Johnson at HeyHeyESJ. Stuart, where can people find you online? Um, I am just Stuart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T on Twitter and the same thing on Instagram. Yeah, you're actually a very funny tweeter. Not as funny as uh, Aaron Levy, but you're close. I got to stay behind. Yeah, if you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants and search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap on the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.